Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the Oil for Basics Discover podcast. This is the show where we learn something new about our incredible industry on every single episode. My name is Derek Craig, and I'll be your host today. And today we're going to be talking with a gentleman named David Callahan. He is with the Marcellus Shale Coalition. He's going to be talking to us about you know what's going on in the Northeast uh, and a lot of uh, news-related uh, type of content as well as just uh, helping us to get a better understanding of what happens up there with uh, specifically the Marcellus, but also kind of tacked on to that would be the Utica Shell also. So pretty interesting region. It's kind of my home region, and uh, we haven't talked about it much on the show, so I'm pretty excited to, to start diving into that uh, content. So before we get there, though, I just wanted to update you on a few quick things. Uh, first off, if you haven't noticed it yet, we're basically settling on a bi-weekly schedule. So every two weeks as opposed to twice a week. I know that's kind of a confusing word, unfortunately. Uh, but every two weeks for the foreseeable future, and Nick Bryan will largely be taking uh, a stronger lead on future episodes. So he'll be uh, coming pretty quickly, uh, more of the official host of the show. So very excited to have him on board and to be taking a larger role in this. But definitely still have a couple episodes you'll be hearing from me from, and this would be one of them. So... Another thing I wanted to mention is we also just released a course on PSV sizing. So uh, pressure safety valve, uh, kind of relief si type sizing. Uh, it's gonna be walking you through the common types of PSVs. You're gonna be walking you through relief scenarios, calculations, and a whole bunch more. So definitely check that out. We've got that course as well as dozens of others on our site available now uh, for purchase uh, individually, or you can even do a membership and get unlimited access to them also. So check those out. We've got a little bit uh, course is kind of for everybody. So all kinds of different topics, drilling completions, production, um, fracking, environmental, uh, legal, bankruptcy. <laughs> we've got a little bit of everything. So definitely check out our library there. And without further ado, we've got a lot to talk about today. So as I mentioned before, joining me today is Mr. David Callahan. He is the current president of the Marcellus Shale Coalition. And I've got to say that slow because it's kind of a tongue twister. Uh, MSC also, maybe maybe I'll just say that. <laughs> um, but David has been involved with the MSC since the beginning and has held uh, previous industry roles uh, with uh, JKLM Energy as Vice President of External Affairs, Vice President Mark West Energy Partners, as well as even having some roles with API Pennsylvania uh, and some, some of their leadership there. So very excited to have you on today. David, how's it going? Thank you, Derek. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to join you today. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you on. And I guess this is your first podcast. So welcome to this world. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> and and congrats on your recent placement. I, I think it sounds like you're about two months into being president now of uh, Marcella Shale. So how's things looking there? And I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. Sure, sure. First of all, I've been been around the organization, as you said, for a number of years, dating back to 2010, but uh, just started as the president uh, back on February 1st. And for your listeners, if they're not aware, if they want to jump to our website, MarcellusCoalition.org, they could learn a little bit more. We're the state trade association here in Pennsylvania representing, you know, the unconventional industry. We have producers, we have midstream companies, and we have associate members who provide products and services for the producers and midstream companies and others. We have uh, roughly 100 or so members in total. And we like to say that uh, just based on previous year's data, that roughly 95% of all the gas produced in PA came from a member of the Marcellus Shale Coalition. It's a broad-based organization. It's very active. We have a lot of things going on in regulatory affairs, government affairs, public affairs, media, technical information, and great meetings that we put together as well. It's a very good, very active organization. 
Yeah, you guys, it's a very interesting part of the the U.S. too, and you kind of mentioned the the media. I know you guys have, there's definitely a lot of historical implications of the Marcellus Shale. I think that was kind of one of the earlier shale plays to really kind of kick off with hydraulic fracturing, and then thus you guys got all the... Uh, um, the Josh Fox um, Gasland films, and so you guys have had a lot, had a lot to, to deal with in the, the Northeast uh, as a whole. There's certainly a lot of challenges <laughs> from the what we what we call the keep it in the ground movement, mm-hmm. and I would certainly put Mr. Fox in that category. And and the documentaries that he tried to you know set up our industry as being his foes, but uh, you know there's there there are a lot of opponents out there who are well funded and coordinated. Um, mm-hmm. They're not in the majority, but mm-hmm. they're loud and they grab headlines and. They get well, they're well funded, as I said, from some foundations or even in Pennsylvania itself. And um, they attack everything from the economic promise of the shale industry, and they claim there's not a lot there. They attack our environmental performance. They say they make, uh, they say their alleged health impacts from our Mm. industry as well, something that I'm sure you're familiar with, with people saying out in Colorado. Unfortunately, as, I, as I've said a numerous times um, since I've started in this position, the, the, their so-called research, their reports, they lack scientific rigor, they lack objectivity, but what they don't lack is, uh, is ink for the headlines. You know, yeah. they, they come out with outlandish claims that can't be backed up, but the media then reports it, and then so we're constantly in a game right. of whack-a-mole. When- Yep. You know, knocking down studies, taking a technical view of what they're doing when they haven't done the technical work. Yeah, exactly. And I guess to people outside the industry too, like, how would they know how to fact check something like that too? A lot of you know, this industry is, in a sense, foreign uh, to a lot of people, which is very unfortunate. And I'm especially thankful for organizations like y'all's, um, you know, that and, and even Oil for Basics that's actively trying to get out there and, and teach people how things actually work and how things are actually run. But my apologies for kind of jumping the gun. I kind of skipped your background. Um, I'd love to kind of backtrack to that a second. We'll definitely come back to that, that keeping the ground movement uh, stuff a little later in the podcast. But you had to, you know, you've been in the industry for quite a while. You said you grew up in, in kind of energy crisis uh, world, right? I, I kind of, you know, what shaped you into ultimately where you're at today? Sure. Thank you for that. That's a good question. You know, I grew up in northwestern PA and in a region that was built, literally a small town that was built on the oil boom of the 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so I've got that as a part of my background. I've had family members, my parents who are, God bless them, still alive. That's Both great. of them worked their entire careers for the local natural gas uh, distribution company. And then you, you look at when I grew up. Um, I was, I'm 55, I was born in 66, so I have vivid memories of the two oil price shocks and the two, you know, what we call the energy crises of the 70s. I remember, while I wasn't driving just yet, it was a couple (laughs) years off, I remember in the late 70s, my parents having to check, and our friends checking their license plate number to make sure they could buy gas on a particular day. So, you know, we had that. We had Jimmy Carter wearing a, a sweater in the Oval Office telling us to turn down our thermostats. We grew up in a period of scarcity. Hmm. Um, so I was drawn to the natural gas industry in my career, and I've worked in and around energy and particularly uh, natural gas for a majority of my 30-year career. And so, you know, working for an organization like the MSC in an industry that, you know, that is responsible for abundant domestic supplies of clean energy, mm-hmm. you know, what's not to love? These are the answers to all the problems I grew up with. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too. I, I guess even you know myself, <laughs> having not seen that, and probably a lot of people uh, in general who who raise a fuss to uh, things that we do and have those loud voices that you were talking about uh, don't have that that perspective. Uh, so I appreciate uh, getting to hear about it and, and learning more about it, and ultimately knowing what we could divert to if uh, things continue on particular paths. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully that's not the case. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to a cold, dark future. I want a bright right, future where right. natural where natural gas has a strong role to play. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you're pretty familiar. It sounds like with even uh, you know the the midstream infrastructure up there. Uh, having been with been with Mark West, uh, tell us a little bit about um, you know kind of what all Mark West does and and just uh, the, the midstream as a whole of, of Appalachia. Because I've also heard on a recent podcast that um, actually did uh, on this show a couple of episodes back was mentioning that you know the the natural gas um, takeaway system essentially uh, the pip- the pipelines like the the, the arteries out of uh, the Appalachian Basin, uh, essentially, they're, they're full, uh, or we won't, you know, it's going to be hard to add new ones or something like that. So it's kind of stifling growth. I'm curious what uh, your take on, you know, midstream kind of as, as a whole up there is. Sure. Well, well, I can I can jump to the without talking about Mark West itself just yet, but I could talk a little bit about that takeaway capacity. Sure. I mean, that's one of the reasons why prices in the Appalachian region are nowhere near uh, what the prices are down at Henry Hub. Mm. You know, you could pick up a newspaper and see what prices are down at the Henry Hub and assume that those are market price prices all over the country, but nothing could be further from the truth. We're capacity constrained here. We need uh, we need more takeaway. Uh, it's it's We've got a couple of important projects on the books, a number of them actually, everything ranging from Mountain Valley Pipeline that goes down through West Virginia into Virginia, Penn East that'll take uh, gas into New Jersey and elsewhere. Unfortunately, we've had a few projects uh, hit the skids in terms of mm-hmm. the state of New York saying, no, we're, we don't want it. We're going to use our 401 water quality certification under the Clean Water Act to stop pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't stop it on, on Clean Water Act grounds. They just didn't want it. Mm-hmm. We need to get product where it's needed. And, and, and once we get that done, we'll see a little more parity in prices in the region. Um, with with other regions of the country as well. And, you know, the other part of it is, if I can continue on, yeah. in addition to the takeaway, we just need to promote more, you know, greater use of the product in, this, in the Appalachian region, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, and elsewhere. The more product we can keep here and use here, the more demand we can generate locally, all the better. More jobs we can provide for people, all the good-paying union jobs for people who construct the pipelines and, and do the manufacturing uh, it's a win-win-win situation. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I know that's kind of. Um, I believe. I guess we can kind of circle back on this. You know, kind of mission statements of the Marcellus Shell Coalition, uh, but ultimately attracting some more manufacturing and, and everything up there into the Northeast region. Is that correct? Absolutely. We, we and when you look at it in the current situation we're in, the pandemic opened everyone's eyes in terms of you know vulnerabilities in supply chains vulnerabilities for consumer goods. A lot of our, our products are manufactured overseas and elsewhere. And, you know, it, it really opened our eyes to the need to reshore manufacturing here. And what a better place I could, I could you know, because you call it home as well, what a better place to do that? But then in, in a region that is full of abundant, uh, mm-hmm. domestically produced, um, clean energy, great labor force, great transportation and you're near um you know major markets all over mm-hmm. so why not locate to appalachia if you want to locate 
whether you're you're you know producing white goods, washers, dryers, refrigerators, mm-hmm. which were in absolute scarcity uh, during the early months of the pandemic, or other products as well. Yeah. Yeah, got a lot of really good solid uh, blue collar labor up there also. Um, And, you know, the people being displaced from other industries and and even to some extent, you know, natural gas as it was kind of spooled down and whatnot. But, you know, a lot of a lot of really quality uh, workers up there that I can even attest to kind of being from that from that area for sure. Absolutely. And a lot of them, you know, when a lot of them are doing great work on some of these pipeline projects as well, we were good paying union jobs. And in the other instance, in terms of the good paying jobs, I recall there was a study um, that the Department of Energy um, issued back in 2019, I believe it was about the shale energy industry itself. But they noted that average wages in the industry were $112,000, 112. Not to be outdone, they said, well, if you take out supervisory, uh, you know, um, um, positions, the average wage is still $88,000. I'll tell you, that's a a whole lot different (laughs) having that in Appalachia versus like Colorado or California or some uh, very populated area. uh, That'll that'll get you pretty far. It will. That's that's a great great opportunities. And obviously, you you know this yourself from where you're from in, in Ohio great opportunities for young people to stay oh, yeah. home, young people to stay in their regions and not yep. feel the need to just vacate home, vacate their region and, and look for brighter pastures elsewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. Um, I would like to circle back a little bit to kind of, you know, the Marcellus you know, shale, uh, you know, the Appalachian Basin kind of as a whole, you know, what kind of numbers are, are we pulling out of there production wise? Like I, I, like I said, it doesn't get a lot of spotlight, right? People talk about, you know, we kind of know the major oil producers and, you know, unless you've worked in the Northeast, maybe, it, you know, maybe you haven't heard about it as much, right? So uh, what's typical production out there look like? What, you know, what is it on a, a basin level as well as, you know, what comes out of that then? Like what types of, we talked about manufacturing, uh, what opportunities comes out of producing those resources specifically? Sure. Well, I I can tell you that in 2020, Pennsylvania produced, I believe it's just a little over seven TCF of of natural gas for the for the year. And for your listeners, I know for me, yeah, seven TCF, a trillion cubic feet, pardon Mm -hmm. me, a big number. What does it really mean? Well, it it can equate to uh, supplying natural gas to every residence in the United States for a year. We could supply the entire country uh, in, in the residential sector just based on what Pennsylvania produced. It's around 20% of US production. Now, when you talk about the Appalachian region, Mm -hmm. I don't have the total number for you, but I think it's about a third of the production for the United States. And while Pennsylvania on its own is in second place in terms of the total amount of production, when you combine all all three states in the Appalachian region and perhaps others, I believe the Appalachian region is number one in terms of production. And my and, good friend who runs the uh, West Virginia Oil and Gas Association, Go West Virginia, Charlie <laughs> Bird's his name, he tells me that uh, if, if PA, Ohio, and West Virginia was a separate country, we'd be the number three producer in the world. That's what I was going to mention. I've, I've heard those, those kind of numbers, too. That, that, that is kind of mind-blowing uh, right there, just to hear that. Well, and again, to ramp up, and, and I know we've had historic production in, in this area, but it's nowhere near what we're talking about now. It's just amazing the growth that has happened over the course of, you know, since 2008 or so. It's just incredible. 
Yeah, I've also heard too, um, and this is kind of from, I, I'm familiar with some of the work that um, I believe the, the Shell Crescent, um, that, that mm-hmm. coalition has, has done in trying to attract industry. And they were saying that what, 80% or something of, of all the residents in the U.S. or something like that is within a relatively short radius um, you know, within Appalachia and within all of these resources. So proximity to population is, is something very interesting on that side of the yeah, U.S. Yeah, another another element of that you know that raises another point you know the shell petrochemical facility that they're putting in north of pittsburgh that's going to take ethane that's being produced by some of the midstream uh, operators in pennsylvania ohio and west virginia and turning that ethane into polyethylene you know i believe shell has said on occasion that 70 percent of uh, of the folks that use their products are located within i believe 700 miles of that facility Um, and, you know, I talked a little bit about opportunities for construction for the, the trade unions and others. There were 6,000 or more um, jobs associated with constructing that, that facility, which, according to Shell, might be, um, should be operational in 2022. So incredible opportunities there. And we hope to see some downstream opportunities from that facility to locate some of those, those manufacturers that use the plastic, that use the polyethylene and other other materials um, closer to the source. Save some, save some money on transportation. Don't ship it elsewhere. Keep it here in basin. Uh, manufacture those products and distribute those products to these, you know, these big markets around us. Yeah, yeah. And I would like to touch a little bit on like the the value chain. So, for example, and correct me if <laughs> I'm a little bit more familiar with the the eastern side of PA in Ohio, West Virginia, than the you know the or I'm sorry, the western side than the eastern side. So correct me if any of this is wrong, but, you know, a large bit of what comes out of um, you know, the Marcellus, you know, primarily gas and, you know, um, even some natural gas liquids and those types of things that you can then, like you're talking about having, you know, having the essentially the, the cracker plant, right, uh, to, to crack ethylene into ethylene. Uh, what else kind of comes out of the, the type of production uh, that we see up there? I know we get a little bit of, sure. little bit of oil, but it's probably a little bit yeah. lighter, right? Um, not yeah, quite heavy there, there's not a lot of that going on. It's primarily natural gas in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, Western PA. Certain areas of West Western PA have uh, have natural gas liquids entrained with with the methane. Uh, once you get just a little beyond Western PA, you're talking about all dry gas, almost okay. pipeline quality. Once you dehydrate it and everything, and it's 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 ready. It's there for the pipeline. But in terms of those liquids, you know, we've we've got uh, the ability to process that gas, which we have a number of processing facilities, at least two or three in the state, a number of others in Ohio and West Virginia mm-hmm. that will process the gas and separate the methane from a mixed stream of natural gas liquids. And then fractionation facilities will then take that mixed stream of, of natural gas liquids and separate them into purity products, ethane, uh, propane, butane, isobutane, and uh, a broad mix of pentanes as well. And those products can be used in all sorts of applications. Now, talking about uh, butane, isobutane, you know, we're talking about chemical applications, we're talking about refinery applications. Those are part of the the gasoline uh, components as well. Propane, obviously, we know that many uses for propane, whether it's as Mm -hmm. a feedstock for, uh, for plastics, it could be also obviously for uh, for the farming community and agricultural community of great use for crop drying. It, it's of great use to extend the reach of natural gas where the pipelines can't reach. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's very versatile. Um, and of course, you are, we already talked about ethane, but we've got the ability to ship these products out 
Um, you know, ethane is obviously via pipeline. Ethane can go from Western PA, uh, Eastern Ohio, and um, West Virginia up to Sarnia. It could go uh, east out to Marcus Hook uh, out near Philadelphia. It could stay in basin to go to that um, processing, or pardon me, to the Shell petrochemical facility. There's also pipelines that can take ethane down to the Gulf Coast. Um, we have the ability to ship other products, um, propane and others, via truck, via rail, um, other products via rail as well. We've, we've seen in Ohio and Pennsylvania the development along some of these processing and fractionation facilities massive rail yards you know it's been it's been you know quite a quite a godsend for the rail industry for the short line and others to see this industry come around because they're able to you know increase their their activity to move product around and get them to the long haul lines gotcha gotcha it's it's interesting you know how, just how much infrastructure we have in the, the northeast uh definitely a lot of a lot of moving pieces to that and like you just mentioned you know a lot of uh, different areas that we can send our products too. So very, yeah, very interesting. And, and as you know, I mentioned the infrastructure for the methane, you know, the natural gas itself. I mentioned a couple of long haul projects. You know, there's also a lot of modernization expansion projects, you know, things that FERC still has to approve, but things don't, that don't, you know, rise to the level of, you know, putting in a whole new pipeline. It could be, you know, additions to compressor stations. It could be adding, you know, compressors to a facility. It could be making those compressors run more efficiently. It could be looping systems, you know, a few miles here, a few miles there, little expansions. Those all mean a big deal. They, they all make the system work better and they all get the product where it's needed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm curious. So you mentioned modern modernization. I'm curious, you know, what you're seeing kind of right now happen, you know, with, you talked about all the, the different operators and, and, you know, midstream players or whoever it be, uh, that's kind of in, you know, as, as members of, of your organization, you know, what do you see them embarking upon right now? Um, what, what are, what are they focusing on? Um, you know, and specifically, you know, whether it's environmentalism, um, whether it's uh, regulation or whether it's like you talked about, you know, modernization, trying to plan for the future, what are you seeing them focus on right now? Sure, there, there's focus on all the above, if I can, if I can be glib about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. in a low price environment that, that we're in now, and we have been for a little while here, you know, the companies have to become more and more efficient. And so they've become more and more efficient about it. it I, in a previous discussion with a reporter, I said it's almost like a symphony, like a conductor bringing in, you know, the trumpets here, the drums there. It's about almost choreography of making sure you get products, pardon me, you get the equipment moving from well pad to well pad as efficiently as possible. No downtime, you know, no, no lost dollars here or there. Efficiency is the key to, to most everything. You mentioned environmental. Absolutely. ESG, environmental, social governance are, are kind of the buzzwords of the industry these days. Now, mind you, we've been doing all kinds of things that have improved our environmental footprint. We've just the use of natural gas has made our environmental uh, our environment much cleaner. But companies are now spotlighting all the good that they're doing and all the advancements that they're making. You see some companies going to all electric fracks, uh, you know, uh, hydraulic fracturing operations where they'll use field gas or some companies are even working to bring in. Um, you know, some companies are even generating power from the field gas themselves. 
Some companies are trying to bring in electricity straight from, you know, the, the local wires around to, to fund frack and frack crews. Um, there's a lot of work being done. One thing that at least in our part of the, in our part of the country, uh, specifically PA, that may not get a lot of note or a lot of mention in other areas is the industry's uh, capability and what they've done in terms of recycling wastewater. Um, the industry uses 93% of its wastewater um, on, on the next hydraulic fracturing operation. Wow. It's something that, that we've been you know, conserving since day one. It's, it's something that the companies take great pride in. Some companies go at 100% or above, believe it or not, where they're taking in others' uh, recycled water and using it for their operations. There are many things that we're doing that have, that have made a big difference on the environmental front. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very good point to essentially congratulate uh, the, the Northeast on. I, know, I, I, would, I don't know a ton about you know, how much the other basins recycle their water, but I know that's definitely one of the, um, you know, the, the ribbons to give to the Northeast is that they, they very much focus on, on that. And that's, no, um, that's not without its challenges either because um, you know, th those well pads, you know, it's hard to connect stuff by, <laughs> by pipeline or anything like that, you know, accessibility issues and stuff. So you got to get the water to the plant, you know, get it, uh, you know, freshened up, <laughs> essentially run it through whatever process you need there to, to clean it up and then ultimately get it transported back to the pad and store it and send it down hole. So there's a lot of challenges to that. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's interesting that the Appalachian basin is, is kind of the, you know, the, the poster child of, of, of wastewater recycling. Yeah, and while we do have tremendous water resources here, we're, we're mm -hmm. mindful of conserving them. We have great relationships with uh, one of the river basin commissions here, the Susquehanna, which yeah. it, you know, comprises the, the major uh, part of, of, of the state of Pennsylvania. They've been great partners with us, and they're, they're in charge of water withdrawals, and they obviously place a priority on, on domestic drinking water during times of drought. But they've been a tremendous partner and we've worked with them we're not working against them yeah. and it's a, it's a it's a great great relationship yeah and i, I can definitely attest to that and uh, anybody can hear that i actually did an episode with uh, uh two of the two of the the leaders from the srbc there so oh, that's okay. actually Wonderful. yep you can actually go back and listen to that they had a lot of good things to say about the industry and uh, also was able to kind of place into perspective just how much we use you know and, and place into perspective with other industries and uh, you know uh, where the resources go and you know how much they're trying to conserve and it was a pretty good episode. Uh, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. So if anybody's interested in that, definitely go back and, and check out that, that episode for sure. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the low, pro low price environment. I know kind of going into COVID, there was some, I'll say hope that, you know, the Northeast, you know, the prices would rise up because you had a lot of oil producers shutting in. Everybody was kind of scared. And uh, the thought was that you take not only the oil offline, but the associated gas. And then, you know, Northeast would be able to rise to the top and say, we got this, guys, and <laughs> carry the torch for everybody. Uh, but it didn't really look like that quite happened. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what, uh, what the story has been through really over the past year uh, up there with, you know, the price environment. And uh, I know there's been, as with anywhere else in the country, you know, um, some changes of, of names and, you know, bankruptcies or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, a lot of things has gone on over the past year up there. So I guess kind of what's been yeah, the... Absolutely. Sum that you know, up I did mention that the 7 trillion cubic feet produced in 2020, that was a 4% increase uh, from the year prior. And if, if memory serves me, that's one of only two single digit 
increases in production year over year that we've had over the past, you know, eight, nine years. So essentially the, the other being shrunk. in 16, 17 or so, yeah. the last time we had a, a major, you know, uh, a major price situation. So, you know, it, it has slowed down, but we're, we're hopeful that we can come out of this, come out of the pandemic. The economy looks primed to roar. I mean, it really does. It, you know, it seems to be functioning well, and it can certainly get better. And as I mentioned, reshoring some manufacturing, getting some more things going here regionally would would bring things along nicely as far as I'm concerned. Okay, interesting. So whether you still got, uh, I guess the balance sheets are okay, uh, still going, uh, <laughs> I guess oh, average yeah, or above up of, there. In terms of members, I forgot you were, you were talking about consolidations. And I mean, we've seen oh, some good. consolidations. Mm -hmm. We've seen you know, some, some industry players um, park their capital elsewhere. And that's mm -hmm. something that we tell policymakers here. You know, the, the, the resource is tremendous. It's great. It is world class here in this region. However, this region is in competition with mm -hmm. where you're at right now in Colorado. It's in competition with the Permian. It's in competition for in terms of the multinational corporations with opportunities worldwide. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that and, and yeah. policymakers have to be mindful of that, that the capital does flow. And we've seen a couple of companies park their capital elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you, know, as you would imagine, you know, the, the, the acreage hasn't stood idle. People have gobbled right. it up. So it's still yeah. of great value. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I guess kind of, you know, along those lines, what have you heard? I guess uh, this can be a little bit of a negative light, but I guess what is the, the largest reservation that some of those larger companies, for example, might have with the Northeast? What are they most scared of? And I guess, are, you know, are you guys doing anything to address that? Well, I don't know if anyone's particularly scared of any one thing in the Northeast, uh, other than just, you know, we have a better opportunity here, or a lot of companies say that the best opportunity is in the Northeast. You've seen some companies focus their operations here. You've got some of the biggest um, independent producers focusing their operations right here in, in Pennsylvania and in the mm -hmm. Northeast. So, you know, it's, it's everybody's, uh, you know, everybody's individual circumstances dictate. Uh, we've got a lot to offer in terms of the resource. We have a lot to offer in terms of, of how it can be used in the region. And uh, we've seen companies take note of that and stay here and, uh, and you know, increase their operations here and grow things. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Um, another question I kind of have for you. So we, we talked a lot about, you know, uh, plans. We talked about, you know, uh, shale, uh, shell. <laughs> I guess I have a little bit of an accent there. Shell, uh, petrochemical facility, uh, you know, landing some of those bigger, I'll say clients, you know, or users, right? Uh, end users, essentially, or processors. Um, what are you seeing for or I guess communicating is like longevity of this, right? So everybody always kind of wonders, okay, well, how long are we sticking around? You know, how long are we going to have, you know, using natural gas? How long are we going to be building plants? Uh, when's demand going to shift? I guess kind of what are your thoughts in that realm? And ultimately, you know, what what's being communicated there? Yeah, we've, we've communicated to the public, to policymakers and others from day one that this is a multi-generational play. This isn't a, a flash in the pan by any stretch of the imagination. The resource is here. It's readily available. The technology is there and the technology is improving day in and day out to extract more and more of it and more efficiently than ever. Um, the other thing that, that we convey is, is you know, we're, we're trying to say that Pennsylvania and not just PA, but the Northeast and the industry as a whole has a very bright future. You know, 
there may be some who want to keep our, our product in the ground. There may be some that want to shift uh, immediately to other sources of energy, wind, solar, and others. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a, it's a well-known fact. We are the best partner and the only partner that could supplement right now and for the foreseeable future intermittent, uh, interruptible um, electricity generated from wind and solar. And, you know, we recently had uh, Senator Joe Manchin address our membership just last week. And he was talking about the future, the energy future for natural gas and other fuels. And uh, he talks about, you know, not supporting elimination uh, of, of fuels and fuel choices, but innovation. He sees in his mind, he sees a very bright future. And, and I don't disagree with him because look at the innovation that led to the development of shale resources. Mm-hmm. You know, partnering together, tried and true practice of hydraulic fracturing with horizontal uh, drilling, the same technology and the same drive that led to that can lead to even greater advances in not only the production of natural gas, but the utilization of natural gas. So, you know, I'm sorry to put on my policy hat and, and stand on my soapbox, but, you know, it, it's, it's premature and it's wrong for the government to try to pick a winner in the energy future. The government should allow the private sector to work its magic, to let the invisible hand work, listen to price signal, signals and know where where everybody wants their energy to be. They want it to be cleaner and we're getting there. Thanks to natural gas, things are getting cleaner. Um, thanks to increased use of natural gas in, in my state, I've, I've got these statistics at the ready, but in, in our state, uh, thanks to increased use of natural gas for the electric generation sector, carbon dioxide emissions are down nearly 40%. Sulfur oxide emissions, this is since 2005, pardon me. Um, sulfur oxide emissions are down 93% since that date. Uh, nitrogen oxide emissions down 81%. And for your listeners, these are other than CO2, the, uh, the other pollutants that I mentioned are what they call the criteria pollutants. So when EPA and, and your state, uh, uh, state environmental departments talk about air quality, they're measuring the levels of these, these, uh, these elements, whether it's sulfur oxide, nitrogen oxide, volatile organic compounds. Those are the primary components of what we generally refer to as air pollution. But again, to repeat, thanks to increased use of natural gas in our state, my home state, we've seen dramatic reductions in the amount of these pollutants in the air. And again, oh, by the way, a nearly 40% reduction in carbon dioxide. If you want a cleaner future for, you know, environment for the, for air quality, natural gas is your choice. If you want to reduce carbon dioxide, not just here, but worldwide through LNG exports, natural gas use is the way to go. Awesome. So yeah. I see a bright future. I, I honestly do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I'm curious too. To you know, Joe Manson, Joe Manchin is a bit of an interesting study, right? So he he's a Democrat. Uh, typically, right? People in this industry associate uh, the Democrats with being trying to take away, uh, switch focus away from natural gas and and basically kind of shrink our industry. And, and Republicans being the opposite. That's, again, that's the, the typical perspective, right? Joe Manchin is kind of. Uh, not quite in either one of those buckets, right? Um, so I guess, is he a good story for uh, maybe ha- the type of communication that we need to have across parties that we're not shutting down our industry and that we're not rolling back progress 
that is essentially getting us, you know, to some of these benchmarks that we've set for ourselves with, you know, reducing, uh, you know, the NOx emissions and, you know, VOCs and all that. I guess kind of what what's your take on, I guess, kind of the, the, the political climate there and what needs to happen? Well, what needs to happen is, number one, we all have to realize that we're a, we're a, you know, a, a bipartisan issue. We've got folks supporting us from both sides of the aisle, both sides. And, and Manchin isn't necessarily the exception. Now, in some areas, perhaps he is. Um, but when you look at where people are from, I, my personal observation, um, I don't have the data to, to back this up, but it's more about where you're from than what your party is. <laughs> um, and so you're talking about perhaps local government officials, state government officials from more rural parts of the country where the production is and can take place. It doesn't matter what party they are. They understand the industry. They generally support the industry. They generally support the notions of energy security, clean, abundant, affordable energy that's being produced right here. Um, it, it, where we have our work to do it's not necessarily a partisan issue, but we have to. Where we always have to do our work is in the more suburban areas, away from the production areas and the urban areas, mm -hmm. where they just plug something into the wall, and they just know electricity makes it happen, yeah. and they don't know where it came from. Kind of like where people don't realize where their food comes from in a lot yeah. of in instances. <laughs> yeah, that's where we have to work. That's okay. where we have to work. Yeah, no, no, thank you for that. That's a that's a good perspective. Um, so I guess kind of, you know, with that in mind, right, so um, trying to help, I'll say, educate or inform uh, some of those, you know, suburban uh, and whatnot, or let's say, you know, people in D.C., right, maybe are from states that don't really have production who are trying to help sway the matter. Um, what's kind of rolling out? Give us a, give us a glimpse of, you know, the, the federal, <laughs> uh, federal rules, federal, um, you know, executive order. There's a lot going on in, in that realm, right? Uh, kind of fill us in, you know, uh, what what y'all what you guys are experiencing um, from the federal level and how that differs from, I guess, how things have been previously and how uh, yeah. regulations yeah. have been designed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll I'll get to the federal situation, but I, honestly, I just thought of something else in terms of sure. talking to people, specifically policymakers and others. Um, the one thing that makes an incredible difference, and we can't do this to every member of the population. But going to a well pad, going to a, a midstream facility, you know, hosting people on tours to see mm -hmm. with their own eyes and hear it and, and, you know, talk to the people who work there and look at the communities where it's where the production and the midstream facilities are located. That makes a world of difference. Seeing is believing. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you were asking no, about that's, what's that's happening a good point. At, the, at the federal <laughs> level. You know, obviously, when, when the president took office and, and almost immediately issued what I call the, the executive order blitz, just any number of executive orders, including with a stroke of a pen, eliminating Keystone XL, um, eliminating the, you know, 10,000 or more good paying construction jobs that came with it, uh, putting a temporary moratorium, whatever their words that they were using on um, production uh, on new leasing on federal lands it sends a chill through the industry. It sends a signal that they do want to eliminate, and we we have to be we have to be mindful of that. You know, we're now seeing that the president, and again, I'm not anti this, anti that, but I'm just calling balls and strikes as I see them. Um, now we hear that the infrastructure package, you know, there, there's obviously picking of winners going on there. You know, if if, and I'll say that, if an infrastructure package is going to move, 
it makes perfect sense for the policymakers to have an understanding and an appreciation for how natural gas is essential for our everyday life here in this country and will be for the foreseeable future. We need a recognition of that and a recognition of that brings with it an understanding that we need natural gas infrastructure. So we need a recognition that we can't have states playing around with federal rules to stop uh, interstate pipelines. We can't have FERC and, and other agencies setting the bar unfairly high or just unfairly at all or not allowing the bar to exist at all for the development of infrastructure. You know, this product is, you know, I could get on my soapbox again. <laughs> it's a, it, it provides for the essentials of life. It provides for the comforts of life. If not for natural gas and oil and products derived therefrom, um, we wouldn't have all the personal protective equipment that we've had to deal with the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Um, gloves, face shields, you name it, the syringes <laughs> that are Disposable cups, plastic plates, yes. everything. Absolutely. Everything, absolutely. everything disposable everything, almost. The takeout containers that, yep. that, you know, allow restaurant industries to still exist. Mm -hmm. um, this the industry propane, is The little heaters on the patios outside because you all had to eat outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't know. <laughs> I received a COVID vaccine in a tent that was heated by by uh, propane. Heaters. So uh, yeah, it wasn't a pup tent, mind you, but it was a big, yeah. big facility. Um, but again, we're responsible and we're responsible for the essentials and the comforts. You know, for folks who are listening, and if they would just take a look around them, I mean, I'm looking in my office, I've got, you know, plastic on my phone, plastic on my laptop, you know, uh, your travel mugs, you name it, it's all around you. And and for me, I know we talk about the medical world, how you know mm -hmm. medical supplies beyond PPE oh are all reliant on, on plastic. It keeps it hygiene. It, it keeps yeah. it clean, and it provides for ease of use. Um, mm -hmm. But another thing, you know, I could see behind you. Look in your room right there. Is yep. your door all wood? Is there some plastic in there? Look <laughs> at uh, your smoke alarm. Is that plastic? Yeah. Look at your plumbing materials. You know. Gone are the day that every housing development and every house has copper pipe in the house. It's now PVC. It's now mm -hmm. plastic. We're, we're the way that, that, that the world operates. And we need a recognition of that, again, to go back to the infrastructure package. Desperately needed. Gotcha. Yeah. No, all, all, all good remarks there. I am curious on, you know, when you talk about a, a moratorium or basically halting progress let's take the keystone for example or maybe it's the fracking ban or whatever which was kind of a a topic for a while and they're like oh no we're not really banning fracking but anyways um so stuff like that um, if you take that what are the the implications on like legal rights to to sue uh, you know whether it's the government or whoever right i mean uh, is it something where you know if they issue a moratorium that it's 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 over with um or is it just kind of like just a game right they issue it and then Everybody and the brother sues, and how does this play out if this is well, we the world a, that we're playing in? We have a bit of a microcosm of that right now in, in the state of Pennsylvania where, you know, I mentioned the Susquehanna River Basin Commission. There's another, uh, one other river basin commission, the Delaware River Basin Commission. And uh, just a few weeks ago, they took unprecedented act action to ban um, hydraulic fracturing within the watershed. And ban development more or less in the watershed and uh, unheard of practice. Can and they even do that? <laughs> that's a very, yeah. <laughs> very, very good question that'll be tested. Um, that, that we have uh, any number of forces ranging from legislators to property owners who want to test that yeah. out. 
Now, here's the thing. We mentioned, you know, the Biden administration and banning hydraulic fracturing. The administration has a seat on this River Basin Commission. The River Basin Commission is made up of um, states where the Delaware River flows, including the Army Corps of Engineer, where they obviously report to the, to the administration. Mm-hmm. And um, the Army Corps, while they didn't vote for it, they didn't vote against it, and they said they would, you know, follow through and implement it. Um, so we do have the administration tacitly supporting a hydraulic fracturing ban. Now, you said about how will it be challenged. There are, there are property owners, royalty owners um, in, in northeastern PA in particular, where it's, it's straddling an area where um, companies have had tremendous production out of Susquehanna County. You just go across the county line and you're in this Delaware River Basin watershed area and their land is now sterile from yeah. production. And they've been under a temporary moratorium, temporary, since 2010 or so. Mm-hmm. So what you have there, though, you have some royalty owners, property owners, royalty owners, whose land has been sterilized. And they consider that, I'm not an attorney, but those mm-hmm. those landowners, those royalty owners, consider this a taking by the government. Yeah. And I, I, they've challenged some of this, and we may see more challenges through the courts. Um, the courts are deciding a lot of things about this industry. I know it's not just a Pennsylvania or an Appalachia phenomenon. It's, it's throughout all the shale plays where the courts have played a major role in determining the rules of the road for not just development, but what you can and can't do, the rules for pipelines, you name it. Um, the courts are playing a very heavy, heavy, heavy role. Gotcha. Uh, and it would be interesting, I guess, to, I guess kind of the answer is just wait and see, right? Um, see how it plays out. And, and who fights and whose voice is the loudest and you know, who gets their way ultimately in the end. So I know this is kind of, you know, playing out in all kinds of different different areas of the, of the country. I know federal land-wise, a lot of that is more out west uh, percent, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a sense than, you know, more so on the, the eastern um, side of the Mississippi. I know not too much federal land there. So we'll see how all this kind of plays out over the, the long term. But the impacts are wide-ranging. The impacts... Yeah you know, hit all of us. And, and one, of the, one, of the, one of the offshoots of that is that, you know, again, I've used the, world, used the term world-class to describe the regulations under which we develop all these resources. The, the regulations here in Pennsylvania, the regulations out west, world-class. Well, if the government then suspends operations or stops further leasing, pro, you know, product will then come into this country from other countries. Yeah. And we cannot guarantee that that the product is being developed according to world-class regulations. So we don't know yes. if there's <laughs> actually more environmental harm being done by, you know, stopping leasing here or yeah. temporarily stopping well, leasing here. Goodness there's sakes, no the, guarantees. At the very least, what we, what we are guaranteed is you have a larger footprint. I mean, even if they produce it to the exact same standard, and you still got transported. So you're, yeah. you're adding your footprint there. Now, I'm curious, so Pennsylvania being so close to, to New York, I'm sure you're familiar with kind of what has evolved there over the years. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding has always been that they don't use Pennsylvania fracked, I'll, I'll say air quotes, fracked gas, right? So they, they bring in a lot of stuff from um, 
a lot of their you know the natural gas or whatever from other countries is that well your understanding is that no good... there, there are pipelines that do that so there do are go some. into new okay. york state but but new york state again is is one of those states that has used the clean water act 401 certification process to stop pipelines from from going into the state okay. they're trying to stop any new use of, of natural gas in the state they want to leapfrog natural gas and go to a you know as 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 much in, in, as they can on the renewable side, not understanding that it's intermittent. And again, I'm not anti, you know, um, solar and, right. and and wind. It's just an understanding that they're intermittent, and you need natural gas to back them up. And you need natural gas for when it, the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining. Mm-hmm. New York fails to understand that. Again, it's it's all about the 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 farther you are away from the production, almost like that food analogy. Yeah. The the less of an un, less of an understanding you have about where it comes from and why it's needed. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and thank you for that correction because I've <laughs> I've always thought they just like completely cut it off. But uh, I don't know, maybe that was something else that uh, some of us some of us in this state I know policymakers who have who have suggested that Pennsylvania should turn off the taps <laughs> going into New York State to teach them a lesson, but we haven't quite gone there yet. Gotcha. Uh, that might be a little drastic. But <laughs> that might be. That or drastic, might be. but yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I appreciate all the, the, the background on all these questions. Um, I am kind of curious, so I guess you're, 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 you're new to essentially being the president. You've been obviously around the organization for a long time, but you know, as with any new president of, of you know, the U.S., you would, you would get questions about, you know, what's your first 30 days, 60 days, 90 days uh, in office looking like? And so I guess kind of what have you, what, you know, what's, what's your big hopes or desires over the next you know, month or handful of months or do a year, right? That, that you know, what's, yeah, what, what are you going to be working on? I guess where are your focal, focal points right now? Sure. Well, the organization was tremendously successful um, um, before I came on board. It's been successful for any number of years. I want to build on that success. Uh, you know, I want to keep providing fact-based information. As as we started the conversation, we talked about others who are out there making outlandish claims uh, about our industry, about the impact of our industry or lack thereof in some instances. We need to keep providing fact-based information. We need to provide a forum uh, for folks to get that information, whether it's from social media, whether it's from our website. But more off, more than that, we need to do a good job and continue to do a good job of, of making the people who work in and around our industry into our advocates. You know, I, I mentioned in a previous conversation with someone, you know, we can talk and I can get quoted in, in, a, in a newspaper. I could be on your local news and people may or may not get the message about the many benefits of natural gas. However, if they talk to a friend at church, the grocery store, the little league field, and they say, hey, I'm an engineer, uh, I work in the industry, or I work for an engineering firm that's been around for a couple of generations. We, we, you know, we designed this road, we did this. We also designed well pads. We also yeah. designed pipeline right-of-ways. It's a pretty darn good business and they're clean. Those are the best advocates we can have. That's how we ensure that real information is getting out there, that the disinformation and the myths uh, <laughs> don't propagate. Yeah, definitely, definitely plenty of those, <laughs> as we <laughs> as we've alluded to earlier, for sure. I know Colorado gets their fair share, but I know Pennsylvania has definitely, definitely got their fair share. So, 
um, I guess kind of, you know, that those are a lot of the discussion points that, that I had down to, to talk through with you, I guess, anything else that uh, you would like to discuss here or get out to, to anybody listening about, you know, your, your coalition yeah. or the industry as a whole, anything sure. else? Sure, folks, a couple of things um, about the coalition. Again, our website is marcelluscoalition.org. Folks can look there for more information. We've got all kinds of information on who's a member of the organization. If you want to be a member of the organization, you know, how you qualify. We have fact sheets, again, trying to debunk myths and provide good fact-based information for folks about our industry and our impacts and the benefits. Um, they could check us out on social media as well. Um, but one thing that, that maybe I didn't get to and, and yeah. you know, one thing that I, I don't want to lose sight of, and that's the fact that um, this natural gas has the ability to make many benefits and improvements worldwide through LNG exports. Um, it's been estimated there's, there's anywhere upwards of 3 billion people in the world who are in the midst of energy poverty. Um, using inferior forms of energy, stagnating their environmental, or pardon me, stagnating not just their environmental performance, stagnating their economic consequences, and, you know, in some instances, harming their health. Natural gas can be, uh, can bring people out of energy poverty, can increase economic activity worldwide, and as I mentioned about um, how the increased use of natural gas has reduced our CO2 emissions here in my home mm -hmm. state, it could significantly reduce uh, CO2 emissions worldwide, worldwide. None other than our current and new energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, has mentioned the many benefits of natural gas in terms of um, how it can help with CO2 emissions worldwide. I wanted to make sure I got that point. Yeah. And uh, we've got a bright future with that. Again, not picking a winner, allowing the markets to work and allowing innovation to continue to work. Yeah, no, great monologue there. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> points. That's something we, um, even in, in school, I got like an, an energy systems minor and uh, we talked about that. And, you know, there's a lot of places around the world that, you know, they're still burning firewood and, and, and dung, unfortunately. And uh, just even yeah. uh, a lot of people dying from the inhalation uh, of, of essentially getting their energy, you know, from, from those sources, uh, that's definitely not without its impacts. So you got it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, fantastic closing statements there. I'm glad to, if, uh, that we got to have you on the show. Uh, definitely welcome back anytime. Uh, congrats again on, you know, becoming president of the organization and best wishes going forward. Uh, we'll keep in touch. Uh, if there's anything else they you know that we can do in awful basics to, to support you guys and, and vice versa, uh, definitely love to, to collaborate with you guys as much as we can. So thank you again so much for, coming on the show today thank you very much it's been a it's been a pleasure awesome thanks david and, and thanks everybody for listening i'll be sure to drop the the website there in the show notes and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode